The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. It's always this time of year that I particularly think about the summers that some of you have probably already heard too much about that I spent from the age of nine onward at my aunt and uncle's home in upstate New York. I was their fresh air kid from New York City. They ran a bed and breakfast in a restaurant that overlooked Lake Cayuga. My aunt would see to most of the details of the menus and the front house management, you might say, and my uncle would run the business side, place the orders, fix the roof when lightning struck, which it seemed to, at least once a summer. Nancy, my aunt, was a natural at hospitality. Her mother had practiced it flawlessly, and so had her grandmother, it seemed, to the women in her family setting a table and preparing a way for guests was an art. Everything was always beautifully laid out. And when you arrived, you felt welcomed like royalty, with huge smiles and hugs and a sense that they had waited and prepared for you all day, which, of course, they probably had. One afternoon, trying to show her all she had taught me, I laid out cups and saucers and spoons and napkins and freshly baked cookies. I hand-picked wildflowers from around the house, and I placed them on the table in the dining room, and I invited Nancy and my mother and my cousins. My mother was visiting us up in Ithaca that summer. And everyone appropriately oohed and awed about the table. And then someone asked for milk in their tea, which I had forgotten to put on the table, so I rushed over and put it out. A big plastic gallon jug. <laughs> Vanessa! Nancy shrieked. Have I taught you nothing? <laughs> so I ran back and put it in the porcelain creamer and filled that with milk and rectified my wrong. Hospitality for Nancy was an art, an art about details, about beauty, and about welcoming that was communicated not just in a table, but in a smile and all the attention to the person who came to that table. It was about time and space that was carved out and prepared to be present, fully present to another person and the specialness that you felt in their presence. The art that Nancy passed on, of course, that she felt is older than her mother and her grandmother. It's age old. It's ages old. It has deep roots in many, many places, some of which I'm sure you all know about and have studied, including the Middle East, where our own Jewish and Christian heritage and teachings sprung up. When I first arrived here, the sermon I preached talked about some of that, about Bedouin culture, which I'd come to know about when I visited Abu Dhabi years ago when my father-in-law and mother-in-law were living there. In Bedouin culture, it is a tradition, a mandate, that you welcome the stranger. 
forbidden as you are when you welcome them from even asking their names, lest you find out they are an enemy or connected to one. And you're mandated to feed and house a guest for up to three days, even if you are heading away from the oasis and they are heading to it. And so depleting your resources puts you at danger. And as a symbol, but also a reality, there's always coffee on the fire because that's the first thing you serve your guest. William Thesiger, who's a great British explorer who traveled across the deserts of Arabia, once saw, he reported, his Bedouin guides fall over themselves to welcome to their tent encampment a man in tattered clothing, and they showed this man incredible reverence, such that when the man finally left, Thesiger pulled aside the primary guide, Bin Kabina, who had been traveling with him for years, and asked him about this man and their treatment of him. The man, it turned out, was revered for his hospitality. Once he was one of the richest men in the tribe, now he has nothing except a few goats. I asked, what happened to his camels? Did raiders take them or did they die of disease? And Bin Kabina answered, no. His generosity ruined him. No one ever came to his tents, but he killed a camel to feed them. By God, he is generous. I could hear the envy in his voice, Thesiger said. Imagine generosity and hospitality to the point of ruin and people who revere you for it. That is the world that helped shape our own. The word guest, the word guest has as its root a word that means spirit. Hence the connection, also ancient across many cultures, that when you're entertaining guests, you and I, strangers, we have to be aware that we are entering, entertaining spirits, the origins and power of which we cannot know in the moment. The stories of entertaining angels unaware in Greek and Hebrew scriptures. We, we value hospitality. We have inherited, those of us who come out of the Judeo-Christian culture, or one of the many influenced by it, or Bedouin and Middle Eastern culture, even in India there's a saying, the guest is God. So many cultures pass on to us this radical sense of the grounding importance of hospitality. Even in our own denomination, Years ago, the program that was created to prepare us to be more welcoming, decades ago, to be more welcoming to people who were gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, recalled us to this age-old ethic, calling the program the welcoming congregation, because who, who would want to be anything but welcoming? Already, of course, it's clear that hospitality is more than the setting of a table. But that's part of run, what runs through our veins. 
Hospitality is what we do to prepare for the guest, to welcome them. It's food, of course, it's food. It's feeding their bodies and making sure their needs are taken care of, but it's the welcome at the door, and it's even more than that. Father Daniel Homan, the Benedictine monk that we read from this morning, he is a member of the rule of Benedict, people who live by it, rules set by Benedict himself, of course, who made welcoming the stranger a mandate among the brothers who would agree to be in community together. Something to keep them open to the world, he hoped, and to work at that welcoming and all that that would require of them in their formation. At Father Homan's monastery in Oxford, Michigan, they had lived apparently a little too cloistered for decades. So one year, they welcomed back a brother who had done work in youth ministry in Chicago and who proposed to them that they turn an old barn that was on the property into a center for youth. It was 1975 and the barn was old and it had no infrastructure and turning it into a place that could welcome youth, where they could come for retreats. It meant a lot of changes and sacrifices just right there. First, the barn had to be made hospitable with things like showers and bathrooms and appropriate room for sleeping. And just as challenging was that these monks, who were for the most part self-proclaimed introverts, had to prepare to welcome youth. Hardwired at this stage, often it seems, for a little more extroversion and connection. They had to prepare to share meals with them. They had to be prepared to have them present on the grounds, breaking the silence with sounds of laughter and conversation and open to the struggles that these youth would bring with them to this place. Benedict knew that when you prepare a place for people at your table, even just that begins to change you. Then, when you sit and eat with them again, you are changed. He was right, and the monks in the Oxford Monastery were about to be changed. It's always easier to care for the world, to care for all the others, writes Homan and his co-author and active laywoman who serves in the monastery too. It's always easier to care for the world, to care for all the others, from a distance. We can even feel good about our prayers for them as long as the people are not in our space and not taking up emotional space in our hearts. They become harder to handle when they show up and expect something from us. But they did show up. By 2002, 80,000 youth had crossed through the gates into the monastery. There they had been welcomed, tended to, and listened to in the way that the monks were trained to be an attentive, present listening, to see and attend to the divinity in each of the children, each of the youth in front of them. So it isn't surprising that some of the youth would show up on the grounds during times of trouble with households exploding beneath them. Not long ago, the monks recalled, we found a young woman in the chapel who had been on retreat in the monastery during her teens. 
It turned out that she had gone into the dark, empty retreat house the night before and slept. Like many adults, she had gone home for the holidays, but the difference with her was that her mother didn't want her home, not like the parents in the song. Over the years, she told them, unbeknownst to the monks, the young girl, this young girl, would come and sit by the rocks, by the gate to the entrance of the grounds when things got bad. So when things fell apart, she went to the only place she knew would welcome her. Other youth returned to have their weddings performed by the fathers and later have their babies blessed, looking for cloistered lives. These fathers opened up the monastery to a world of turmoil and searching and beauty and deep connection, all of it took hold of them. 80,000 lives invited to change their own. Father Homan writes, merely being nice to people, it does not fulfill the deep requirements of Benedictine hospitality. We must let the person stir us. We must connect. Benedictine hospitality will extract a cost from us, and it will tumble us into the magical realm of personal transformation. I think mistakenly sometimes we think otherwise. Maybe lazy in our understanding of hospitality, we assume that if we warmly welcome someone, doing our job as a good host at the door, that their job as guest is to become one of us or easy for us to accept or feel connected to. Their job is to figure out how to say the right things, wear the right clothes, not upset us. Except for minor tinkering, they're supposed to leave behind what pieces of them don't fit the mold that we have made in our family, in our church, in our city, in our nation. I'll admit I'm guilty of that sometimes. When new people arrive in my church asking for change, I can sometimes feel my first reaction is a defensiveness or a protectiveness of who and what I think we are. And I want to be fair, too. I think there is this thing called conditional love in the world where people can come at us and say, unless you change, unless you're what I want you to be, you are not lovable. And I think whenever that shows up, wherever it shows up, it's something we should be nervous about because we just are lovable. And then we can be invited into conversations about transformation to be better together, feel more connected to ourselves and each other. So there's some place in between this sense of welcoming the guest to change themselves or leave behind the parts of themselves that don't fit and us changing who we are at the whims of anybody who comes in the door. Something in between there that is in this work of hospitality that we're talking about. Something that this Bedouin rite of 
welcoming the stranger and the Benedictine rule and so much else is pushing us into. Father Homan and Lonnie Pratt write about hospitality. To do it right, you have to think about your guests' preferences and history. I think they're speaking literally about what foods to serve, but also metaphorically, right? To welcome a guest is to try and understand, to listen to where they've been and figure out how together you can serve one another's healing and fruitfulness and fuller life. To do that means, of course, we're not just making a meal, but we're meeting a person in a way that says, that orients our heart to be ready to say, I am open to you and that you might change me might show me where and how I need to be changed to be more loving, to be more welcoming and embracing, because you matter to me, which of course we do matter to one another. In our tradition, we believe in the worth and dignity of all people. We assign worth and dignity to all people. We see the holiness in them and we expect them to change us. I hadn't really thought so much the last time I preached about welcoming, about this transformational piece of what it asks of us. But I think it's key and timely, and I find myself circling around it. As we Unitarian Universalists, we members of the First U Society of San Francisco, we who live in and help shape this nation are needing to grapple again with what it means to be hospitable and truly welcoming in the fullest spiritual sense of that, in the institutional change that's required of that, to be welcoming of a more expansive notion of gender, for example to be changed by a world that is not majority white and that does not put whiteness at the center of all the norms, but invites the norms to be shaped and defined by everyone who brings their full selves and is invited to bring their full selves into the conversation, into the messiness that Carmen talked about that's present and hard and beautiful and gorgeous when we do that. Welcoming in that sense is something that's so important that it clearly means giving up the comfort of avoiding what feels complicated or confusing because it's so important for us to figure out how to be better as a nation and a city and a church and a family. And the only way there is to get into the messy, hurting, hard parts together. That, after all, is what those monks in that monastery in Oxford, Michigan did, the one that had more capacity for love than it thought it did, and the fruits of their wading into that world defined also by the youth who they welcomed in was both the struggles they let in, but also the laughter and how the stranger became a beloved extended member of the family whose weddings they danced at and babies they blessed, who showed up in the middle of the night because they needed someone who they knew would love them back into wholeness and healing. Spirit entered with each guest, as that word implies it will, to blow the place open to bigger love. 
So it's what I find myself thinking about this summer again, what it means to live that ethic of hospitality. The one I learned in part at the table set by an aunt, but I learn more deeply each time we're challenged to ask what it means to be welcoming to whoever might show up at our doors. So pour that coffee, brothers and sisters and siblings, remembering that that man in the desert who gave everything to welcome each stranger that showed up at his tent encampment, pour milk in the creamer and call to mind those who taught you how to welcome and love this way, this intimate breaking of bread, journeying shoulder to shoulder way. And may we all go to the doors we stand by wherever we do, whenever and wherever we are the ones, and open the way, and open spirit in its wild transformation to larger life as we do so. Blessings to us all, and amen. Welcome. Welcome is such a common word, yet when I think about it, it's a very complex word. When Vanessa asked me to reflect on a time when I felt welcomed, no particular moment or person or place came to mind. As I asked myself the question, I noticed more that feelings were arising. This past year, I have become more painfully conscious of how I am more easily welcomed into spaces and conversations with less hesitancy and greater comfort less question than my friends and colleagues who are black, Filipina, gender fluid. I generally move through the world gliding through the invisible gates that keep many others out. I'm welcomed in this community. I'm welcomed by my family, welcomed by many friends, and I'm pretty certain about that welcome. As long as I behave with certain norms, as long as I know the spoken and unspoken rules, as long as I dress appropriately or don't bring up certain subjects, as long as I don't question too much or get angry or make someone feel uncomfortable, I move around in these familiar circles, generally feeling lovingly welcomed. Well, at the same time, I don't necessarily feel known. It takes time to get beyond the surface or generalities or assumptions people have of me. I have a whole world inside of me. I filter. I guard, I keep quiet, 
I behave according to the social norms expected of me and feel anxiety if too much of my humanness shows up ungroomed. There are so many complex layers of thoughts and feelings and experiences roaming around inside of me below the surface. Sometimes I struggle to welcome them myself, let alone reveal them for others to welcome. This past Friday was Sam Dennison's birthday. Sam and I live and work together at Faithful Fools. Sam decided to declare it a national holiday, so we took the day off. We spent a splendid day together with a variety of friends, some more familiar than others. As we walked and talked together and had spaces of wordless presence, I found myself relaxing. My buzzing brain slowed to more of a pleasant hum. I looked around me and took some deep breaths. The complexities of life began to feel a little less harsh. Though among some of our companions, there was visible trauma, both generational and more recent. And there was resiliency too. As I became more comfortable and present in the spaces, I looked around, extending my sight beyond the most immediately. I noticed an apparent messiness, a kind of unkeptness, yet it all seemed to be in a curious and natural and refreshing order. It all just was. No one present was having to filter or cover up or hold back. There were no pretenses or expectations to be anything we weren't. Vanessa's question was on my mind. Here I feel welcomed, I thought to myself. My messy, scattered, multi-layered, ungroomed, luscious human self. As we came to a close together and Sam and I ready to take leave and our, foot, our feet hit the asphalt, I turned and I thanked the forest, the dried leaves and twigs, the trees that had burned in the 2020 fires and the new redwoods that were taking root the banana slugs and all the birds, the shy and the bold, the majestic and the straggly, the four-legged and the two-legged, all here together, unabashedly welcomed in the fullness of our natures. Mm -hmm.